being able to have a digital twin of the future of that city, which would mean digitizing zoning and applying that zoning to every property and modeling each one of those at scale, which is what we do, you're able to then look at the city in many potential futures and pick the path that it's most beneficial for the community. Welcome to Light Data Action, the podcast that's on a mission to help you discover new technology trends and tools and better understand how they affect the world around us. Light Data Action is sponsored and produced by Lumen Technologies, the platform for amazing things. I'm your host, Terry Barbonis, and in each episode, I'll speak with industry executives and thought leaders to discuss how these technologies change the way we do business, how they influence the fourth industrial revolution, and how you can stay ahead of the innovation. If you're ready, let's join the conversation. Hey, everybody. Eight years ago, world leaders met in New York City to discuss how to achieve a better and sustainable future across major global challenges, including poverty, hunger, inequality, climate change, and health. Now, they agreed on 17 Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, that were adopted by all UN member states as part of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and established a 15-year plan to achieving these goals. Now, although progress has been made in these areas since 2015, there's still a lot of ambitious actions required to successfully achieving the, that original target. And the progress has been, that has been made is certainly attributed to the brilliance, resilience, and tenacity of all those involved, but they weren't working alone. Technology has a key role to play here, and in particular, the rise of things like artificial intelligence. Now, on that list of 17 goals, number 11 on that list was the sustainable cities and communities. And my guest today is on a mission to help further that goal using technology such as artificial intelligence to help advance real estate projects in cities and communities. Olivia Ramos is an entrepreneur and founder CEO of DeepBlocks, an artificial intelligence platform consolidating all the tools and processes needed to analyze any real estate project. Olivia holds a master's degree in architecture from Columbia University, a master's degree in real estate development from the University of Miami, and a bachelor's degree in architecture from the University of Florida. She's a graduate of all three Singularity University startup programs and was the only woman participant in the DARPA Innovation House program. Olivia, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you here. Thank you for having me. In prepping for this episode, one of the great quotes that I was reminded of is from the German poet, playwright, and novelist, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, who wrote that architecture is frozen music. And one of the fascinating things about you was your involvement with music and, in fact, first chair at the Miami Youth Symphony at the age of 10. So my question is, how did music, especially at such an early age, influence your journey into architecture and then subsequently technology? Wow. Yeah, that's taking me back a little bit. Um, you know, music, in, I was born in Cuba, and, and Cuba has a very deep-rooted culture in, in all kinds of different musics, I, and I grew up in a conservatory. Um, there are many conservatories in Havana and um, 
and yeah, and I, and I think what was most impactful in my kind of academic and, and classical music education is the practice, waking up at 4 a.m., doing two hours of scales, learning all the different programs for the symphony, learning my own programs. And, and that at such an early age, from like the age of four to, to the age of 13, when I, when I played, gave me kind of a practice that I then carried on in architecture and now in technology. And, and it's a kind of a rigorous practice to continue to be better, continue to, to seek. And, and I think most children that grew up with a music education have, have a certain rigor and a certain respect for that kind of discipline. Right. You know, I share some of that with you. I too studied architecture and I fell in love with technology. And I think those that have backgrounds in things like architecture and music, when they move into something that's got its own disciplines like technology, there's a certain creativity that comes with it that I have found at least that you don't always get from somebody from the beginning who, you know, maybe studied comp sci and, and got a degree in technology and so forth. So I've always appreciated that. And I'm, I'm thinking maybe you're sort of cut from the same cloth in that perspective, and I certainly appreciate it. And from the architecture side, and I'm sure you, you can relate, is the ability to look at things and look at problems in three dimensions. Right. And not everybody can imagine a box in their right. mind and you know twist that box sideways in their mind. And, and I think bringing that kind of mentality into software gave us like a good edge, and it, it allowed us to innovate within the technology conversation. Yeah, definitely. So I had mentioned this in, in my opening, but in 2016, 2017, you participated in Silicon Valley's prestigious uh, Singularity University for 10 months, I believe, where the idea for you know your startup Deep Blocks kind of came together. Uh, can you can you share with the listeners what Singularity University is and sort of what you experienced, right? The emotion and so forth that came out of finding out that you had been accepted to such an organization? Oh, I, I was really excited. I was working in construction at the time. And wow. I was wondering what I, what I was doing there, working in construction. And it makes a lot of sense now. But when I got into Singularity, and, and it was, you know, I worked in construction between the DARPA program and Singularity. So it was a strange place to be. When I got into Singularity, I was really excited. Singularity is a futurist university that focuses on seven global grand challenges, uh, not too different from the sustainable development goals that you mentioned at the beginning. And the task was to create a company, a startup, that would use an exponential technology, that was one of the requirements, and apply that to one of the seven global grand challenges. And I came to Singularity, my proposal was to continue my DARPA project, which was leading towards bringing information seamlessly into the brain. And I had zero experience in that. And so nobody wanted to join my team, but there was one gentleman, Bernard Leong, who was very passionate about housing, reducing the cost of housing. He lived in Singapore. Singapore real estate is very expensive, very hard to become a homeowner. And so I saw him with this passion, no background in real estate or architecture. And I said, well, nobody wants to join my team. The least I could do is give him some information, everything I know in the 12 years of academia and architecture and real estate. Once I did that and I mapped it all out in a whiteboard, he took a look at it and said, an AI could do that. And I swear that like something happened in my mind, like my brain broke. 
in <laughs> half. And I, and I imagine the rest of my life just with this goal to have all of the pieces within real estate development and architecture into a single brain, a single artificial system. And that's, that was the beginning of Deep Blocks. Wow. And, and how long did it take from that point to get Deep Blocks up and running to a sustainable state where now you could actually start applying what you did on the whiteboard to solving some actual pragmatic problems? Yes, the, the first goal was to explain it in a way that singularity saw the exponentiality of it and not, sure. you know, at first it was it was perceived as this could just make real estate developers richer. But we proved that with the system, we can optimize any kind of architecture, including informal housing, in slums or favelas, including, you know, just taking into account any kind of material local material, local labor, and optimize that kind of simple housing into more sustainable, secure, and safer homes. So once we were able to prove that the AI did not prefer any one real estate over another, and it would just optimize real estate across the globe, they, they kind of bought to the idea. And 10 months later, we raised our first million during the accelerator. Wow, that's fantastic. So DeepBlocks uses artificial intelligence AI to simplify complex building projects by providing a set of tools that allows you to build and plan cities of the future. Can you go a little more into that process and sort of the uniqueness of what you've brought into an industry that, quite honestly, has been needing some disruption for a while? Yeah, and we don't we don't like to use the word disruption because... Members of that industry invest in our company, so we're enhancing their process and bringing it to a new level. The first thing we did was we realized the biggest pain point in development was understanding the development rules, the zoning rules. So that was the first implementation of AI. Can we use AI to extract those rules automatically and structure those rules in a universal, standardized way so that we can look at hundreds of cities at once and understand specific opportunities for, let's say, student housing or affordable housing or, you know, a very specific market group. And so removing the boundaries of the municipality, which are now locked in by these documents that are only in PDF forms that have their own language that are very difficult to read. They could be 4,000 pages. And so bringing that into a digitized format so that in a software, you can immediately understand the entire city was the first step, which means you can say in Miami, how many parcels can I build 200 units for this type of demographic? And currently it's either vacant, vacant land, or there's less than 10,000 square feet. We could do that today. And that would be impossible without the software that we've, we've put together. When I was prepping for this conversation, I spoke to some friends of mine that are practicing architects. And one of the questions that came up, which you just reminded me of is, how does what you're doing aid city planning departments, for example, in incentivizing developers to consider, for example, more moderate income housing? Because it sounds like through the use of this technology, the incentive is if I can optimize the process of building and developing, that can then therefore lead to a bigger payday potentially for actually developing that product. That may be an incentive that we get to see more of it. Is there that dynamic that's already occurring from what you've done within certainly Miami and, and or other cities? 
We're at the beginning of that. So the city of Miami is a customer. And right. the, the reason they bought the software was to be able to understand the economic repercussions of upzoning. So when a developer says, I want to do 20% more units, currently they, they don't have the means to understand what is the increase in value of the land for that project or even increase in value of the property of the of the project. So with the blocks are able to say okay if we add this incentive this is how much more revenue or how much more value it brings to the project and by them knowing that delta of before and after the incentive they're able to then negotiate that this could be a percentage could be affordable or market rate or workforce housing and they're able to validate that ask with the increase in value that they're providing with the incentive and historically you don't combine volumetric zoning studies with financial analysis at the city level so this is something that could be a next step for cities to negotiate what they want the developers to build when i talk to customers sometimes or being in research and development role within my company, you hear things like construction companies building digital twins of the building even before anybody puts a shovel in the ground because it allows them to do things. I'm sure some of the same things that that you're doing. And so all of a sudden you start to see this trending in an industry that traditionally has been, whether it's surveying all the way up to 3D printing, housing parts now, if you will, certainly in the residential community. How hard of a sell is it, if sell is the right word, within this industry to get a city planning board, for example, to say, that's pretty neat and not, this is the way we've always done it and that's the way we're going to continue to do it. Is there that dynamic in, in what you're doing? And I'm assuming you know, with, with the successes you've already have, you have the receipts, <laughs> you have the proof points to be able to say, this is not just an idea, we're actually executing on this. There's two parts to that that I want to address. One is the idea of the digital twin. And if we create a digital twin of a city and we're able to model potential changes with AI, we can generate 10,000 variations of the future of that city and validate which variation would be the most optimal. And optimal could mean add diversity to the city, add affordability to the city, our efficiency in our infrastructure for the city. So being able to have a digital twin of the future of that city, which would mean digitizing zoning and applying that zoning to every property and modeling each one of those at scale, which is what we do, you're able to then look at the city and many potential futures and pick the path that it's most beneficial for the community. So that sell might be a little bit harder than, right. hey, you could sit with a developer, speak their language and understand in real bottom line terms what these incentives mean on a project by project basis. That is very easily understood by the commissioners that approve these projects and the planning department that has these negotiations. And now Digital Twins has expanded into this idea of mapping the planet. When you talk about things like metaverse and mapping it to 30 and 20 centimeter accuracy to allow you to do to go beyond anybody's wild expectations of being able to simulate so many things long before you ever do it in the physical world. So I think it's just fascinating to be able to, to do that. 
yeah, we see ourselves as one of the interfaces from the metaverse into the real world to, right. to be able to study potential developments and potential scenarios from the viewing point of the metaverse, but you know, working in the actual real physical world. Deepwalk's mission at a high level, I think this is on your website, is to help people live in safe, secure, and sustainable buildings. In one of our previous shows that we did, I spoke with Trenton Thornock, who's one of the managing partners and founders of Wyoming Hyperscale, that's building net zero carbon data centers at you know high altitudes, immersion cooling. I mean, it's next generation stuff. And one of the things we discussed is this idea of how doing well financially can be intertwined with doing good. You know, we talk about these sustainability goals. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it as that very f- sort of fundamental thing in terms of, you know, um, good and well being intertwined. I get a sense that's part of the DNA for, for deep blocks. Was it originally a core to the concept of what you're doing now or initially did it just start with, there's a challenge that we can help solve with technology and an understanding, your understanding of architecture and construction. And then everything that happens from there is sort of a cherry on top. Or did you go into it from the perspective that, yeah, we can do, we can not only solve the problem, but we can do some real good here. So one of the things that we prioritized in building the software was from the beginning for it to have financial calculations. Right. Because we knew that, and from experience, there's very little innovation happens in architecture and development because it's really difficult to put a number on that innovation. I mean, even just analyzing a sustainable project raises the fee of analysis by 25%. So that's why it's not done. One of the purposes or the goals of DeepBlocks is to have complete analysis of development in no time, in zero, instantly, thousands of them. So by reducing that time and adding the financial component from the beginning, we can then begin to iterate with new systems and innovative systems to be able to reach that do good part that you're talking about. So if do good means more sustainable, more natural light, more passive systems, more affordable, more streamlined construction, None of those can happen if you don't have the financial component on it, if you don't understand how to optimize for that as well. So so we believe fundamentally that it has to produce, it has to be income producing, it has to be profitable in order for it to even have a chance. And so we baked that in from the very beginning. I think I saw that there were 10 other startups that you were involved with prior to this one. How did you overcome some of the other startup efforts that, you know, for one reason or the other didn't survive. And what would be the message that you would give to other entrepreneurs that may be trying to do something equally audacious or just trying to do their first startup in terms of continuing to move forward? Yeah, it, it's a it's a beautiful process. It's a painful yeah. process. I think right, right. most of the experiences were how to work with other people, how to have co-founders, how to align vision and goals and moral compasses into, into a project. Also, how to fundraise. I learned so much at Singularity. I, that was a huge crash course on the terminology around startups, around raising money, around the VC world. All of that was new to me in those prior, you know, 10 companies. I had no idea that that world existed. 
But what I got out of it was little by little, I, I knew what I loved in terms of what I wanted to continue to work on and what was not as important. So some of those projects were products, and I'm not interested in kind of B2C products as much, or right. book projects or service-based. And when Deep Blocks, when it hit, when that moment where my brain kind of broke in half, I knew that there was an exponential potential to the impact this could have. It also combined everything that I had worked for in you know, academic and in the field, and it potentially solve something that I was very upset about, which was the inefficiencies and the how expensive buildings are and how that gets transferred to the end user. So in terms of like inspiring others to do something, one is, you know, the last thing I thought about was how much money can this make, right. which is great. And you have to be really upset about what you're solving because when things are not going your way in terms of funding or conversations or sales, you have to continue to say, well, but this is the only thing I want to do in my life. And this is the only thing I want to solve. And that gets you through those hurdles. And, and I learned that through the previous startups and the failed startups and, and now more than ever with Deep Blocks. Just out of curiosity, were any of your other startups connected to anything of what you're doing with deep blocks or were they completely separate ideas from the idea that became deep blocks? All of them were connected in one way or another. One of them was trying to do this hybrid of architecture and real estate where, you know, I was a professor in multiple universities combining these two programs. I was trying to write a book to, to change the industry in that way. And Deep Blocks does that in a much more efficient and scalable way, of course. I also tried to start a development company to, to do the whole thing in one process, in a single team. Deep Blocks is a reflection of that. And there were many other steps. Uh, it was a data visualization company, the, and that helped in the interface of Deep Blocks and how we express the data. So all of it kind of came together really nicely at Deep Blocks. And, and I think that you can only see that in hindsight, of course. Sure. At the time, like my parents and my friends thought I was like completely crazy and lost and kept doing random things, but now it all makes sense. So right. you just gotta right. keep going, yeah. Right. How does technology and especially things like AI, do you think, how are they changing architecture itself? We have AI that is now creating art. You may have seen that online. What do we gain from a creativity perspective if technology starts to, you feed in some requirements for space and utilization and so forth, and an artificial mind is creating something? Do you have a viewpoint on that out of curiosity? I do, and it could be controversial, see, I... I think there's so many things to solve sure. and architecture design is losing the responsibility of pushing the envelope forward. Right. And in my opinion, of course, design is the last thing that we should be worried about. We should be worried about efficiency, affordability, inclusivity, and that's not there yet. So I think once we get there, and, and I, I think we can only get there with technology, then we could say like, well, how can we be creative from here? But worrying about the beauty and the art and the expression at this point where we have a housing crisis, I think it's like painting your nails when you don't have any clothes. <laughs> so that's the way I feel. I think that technology can get us to a place where we have efficiency, optimization in all the different aspects that we're lacking. 
And you can design from there. You can always redesign what it looks like and what it feels like after it's efficient and it's made an impact in, in how we live and how cities are built. Yeah. It, and it's funny how that's evolved because I remember having friends that work in architects that complain when they try to do something different on, especially when dealing with commercial buildings like apartment buildings, and they try to do something unique in the design. So it doesn't look like the last one. And the client would review it and say, what, what, what's this over here? And you'd say, oh, I added this element because of X. And the next question was, well, how much is that going to cost me? And the next thing you know, that was taken out of the design. And now you ended up having these cookie cutter sort of designs. And as architects, you got into it because you love design, you love trying to create something and so forth, just like with any of the arts. And I think that became kind of disheartening to see that. And so I look at this from this perspective, but also as somebody who really tries to find the benefit of technology in everything we do, or at least technology being a co-pilot to what we can do as humans. I'm a little extremist in, in my comments in terms of design <laughs> is not is not important. Right. What I I believe that technology can get us to a point where we can design freely because the rest of it will be covered by the technology. And if we can let technology do all the calculations, everything that's in the zoning, the building code, all of that could be automated, which would leave a lot of room for you know what we call design. That's great. And I, I don't think your views are extremists, by the way. At least for me, I share some of the same views. It's interesting to hear somebody else reiterate it. Whenever these days you deal with AI, there's a lot of the term AI ethics, right? We're using AI for talent acquisition. We're using AI for all kinds of things. And, and I think the question of ethics comes in, you know, what if the AI has a bias, for example, right? How do we ensure that we're not doing anything even inadvertently nefarious with AI. Is there an AI ethics component to what you do and or the data, the incredible amounts of data, I would assume that, that you are kind of gathering and, and collecting? Yes. I think one of the more sensitive subjects around cities and city development is gentrification. Sure. And if we expedite the processes of knowing where to invest, how quickly to invest and where to develop and where that growth is happening, it could be that if we're not careful, gentrification can happen even faster or, or even more extreme. And we want to be very cautious and careful with what that means and have strategies against it and have strategies of inclusivity. And, and that is possible. But is there a danger for sure? Is there a danger also for the wrong people to use this power of being able to invest much quicker than everybody else? One of the criticism of the current market is equity firms buying up all the single family homes and creating for rent product. So people don't like that. It's reducing home ownership. Home ownership is aligned with less crime and more caring and united communities. So these issues we take into account and we look at them with care, but there's also like, we need to build fast. People need homes. We're in a deficit of 7 million affordable housing units. So anytime you build something powerful, you, you always have two sides. And, and I think being aware and you know not turning your face away from it is, is important. I was just talking to an executive from a healthcare company that's clinical trials, and we were talking about AI ethics in the healthcare industry. They talk about clinical trials from the perspective of you already have some distrust, especially when you get into inner cities and so forth, 
right? I don't want to provide data that's going to force me out of my home or or something worse because of exactly what you're talking about. And so it's interesting how across industries, there's that awareness, especially with companies today. And I certainly, for one, am glad to hear it, but I always ask the question because I'm just curious if there's any new strategies for being able to make sure that you don't participate in something that's going to be negative, but at the same time, do something that clearly shows that A, you are trying to help and B, that this is a, a better way across the board for everyone to be able to optimize the way we do things like build, building community housing and so forth. Absolutely. I think, you know, right now the, the data that we use is public information, all of it. Okay. Um, none of it is personal or consumer data or anything at a personal level. We want to move forward with exposing the data within buildings through IoT, through blockchain, having that digital twin of all the resources within a building. We think that's going to be really great. And it's going to allow buildings to digitize and become liquid much faster. And we, you know, that's a whole conversation about the NFT of buildings and things like that. We don't have to get into that, but right. transparency is going to be very important when the public is investing in these digital assets that translate into real estate. At some point, we need to get into that data of like how much water is being used, how much rent is being paid to be able to have a really good metric for investing and having more liquidity in real estate. Does using things like AI to get all the way up to the point where you're going to develop and physically build whatever you're building, does the technology then extend into the building itself? In, in other words, are, are we not only, when we get to the point of understanding what we're building and why and the cost and so forth, are we then also creating more and more smart buildings from that perspective as well? Or does the process stop and, and the buildings are still what they've always been? They're not any less or smarter than they are. Are we extending that next generation technology? Because I think that's cool. I mean, obviously the residential market there's a number of companies that have already been doing it where you can use gray water systems and, and things like that. Sensors to tell you if it's going to rain, then it's not going to water your lawn, for example, because it's going to rain. Are, are you seeing that happening as well? I am hoping that that's happening and I'm, and I'm hoping it increases. And, and I think the idea of the kind of tokenization of real estate is sure. going to push that forward. Right, uh, because those buildings will have uh, more trust than buildings that are completely opaque, or you know, and and also unless we understand how buildings perform, how can we improve them? You know, our next step in in our company is to have a fund and is to invest and develop to prove that our software is leading to the right place and to continue to innovate all the way through to the operations of the building, and we hope that that inspires a practice of transparency in real estate. Right. Have you been approached by other entrepreneurs that see what you're doing and want to sort of dovetail or jump off of what you've done to, to take it to the next level and do some collaborative innovation along with DeepLocks? Absolutely. Especially on the generative design side. So right. because we understand what you could build, there are these, there's, you know, a good dozen or two dozen companies that do really well generative design for different industries. So then understanding what is allowed would give them the, the metrics to generate really accurate future digital twins of these potential buildings. And that's something that we're very excited about. I mean, we want to, whether it's collaboration or building it ourselves, look at the entire cycle of a building. Is there other 
you know, trending nascent technology that you're excited about and how you can leverage it to kind of go to the next level with D-Blocks? Well, like I mentioned, a blockchain and IoT. I think, you know, blockchain as the next database could show us, you know, where our taxes are going, where our water is going, Uh, being able to map all of that in in a visual way, but having that data stored and safe in a transparent way uh, could really help us understand how a city is performing and where infrastructure needs help and and where innovation is necessary. And IoT is the the receptors that give us that information. So both of those technologies combined, I think, are going to be lethal to the transformation of cities. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned blockchain, and certainly from a trust perspective, there's, there's a use case that talks about electric vehicles and the fact that one of the key components in the lithium ion batteries that they use is cobalt, Cobalt has a notorious reputation around the world of being mined in nefarious ways, you know, child labor and things like that. And and one particular auto manufacturer basically established that they're not going to buy cobalt from anybody that uses practices that go against their own ethics. And so they they basically put in a supply chain blockchain. They got all their suppliers to buy into it and they can track in an indelible fashion how much cobalt they're receiving, how much they're paying for it, and where it's coming from. And, and to me, the fact that they got all of their suppliers to sign into it is kind of neat. And so to me, technology like that goes back to how do you make something transparent as a way to certainly build trust? And then how do you use mechanisms where you have an audit trail for whatever reasons to be able to play back and say, why did we do this? Where did we buy this from? What was the action we made and so forth? Absolutely. And and I think applying that, if you think about a building, when you buy a condo in a building, sure. you have no idea what the efficiency of that building looks like or the integrity of the building. And if that was in the blockchain, if how much water is going to use, what materials were used, where did it come from? If you could look at the operations of the building with before you're buying a condo, which never happens, you might choose one over the other because of that performance factor. And right now we buy stuff without just assuming that it's going to go up. That's it. Right. <laughs> um, so it could be much better than that. The amount of information that you can gather. And in that particular case where you have visibility into sort of what works, right? You bring together these attributes, these actions, and it creates not only does it help you create the physical structure of the building, but it also creates an optimal operations environment. Are, is that data something that would be sought after? Because it seems like, you know, I talk about digital transformation. We've been talking about digital transformation forever. And there's there's more than one use case that shows where we fail. And yet we seem to do the same thing over and over again, even though we have the data that says, don't do that, do this. Is there data in this process that you're creating that almost become a playbook for how to succeed? And is that something that you find people are asking for something that you look at and you go, wow, this would be, this would be an interesting offshoot to what we're doing because it's invaluable. It's sort of like a clinical trial where you're proving it out and now somebody could leverage this. You know, we are at the very beginning of this, of the digitization of development. And so the first step is the zoning data. And with zoning data, we can understand uh, a city's capacity a city's momentum, combining that data with demographic and construction activity, we can understand where a city's going in the future and how fast. 
And there we can make decisions on where to invest and what to build. That's where we are right now. So the data that we digitize, and we have the largest repository of digitized zoning data in the country, that is now becoming a product in itself because it allows funds and it allows cities uh, and, and advisory firms to immediately understand the opportunities across many cities and to allocate funding accordingly and to have a three to five year plan on how to develop within a city or within a neighborhood. So so yeah, absolutely. And w- once we get closer to the internal workings of a building and, and you know, we're not there yet, right? I'm sure that, of course, that data is going to be very valuable. And that's why we want to build our own buildings eventually so we could expose that data and show how much power uh, there is in that transparency and how much better it is for even the developer. Right. Have you already expanded outside of Miami, are you in multiple cities or multiple areas now? And is that a direction that you're hopefully looking to move into? The software is active in 100 cities, in 100 U.S. cities. And we have digitized 200 U.S. cities. So we're in this in 2023, we'll roll out the next 100. We're also now in collaborations with different development companies and investors outside of the U.S. in Latin America to, to bring the software to Brazil, to Chile, to Mexico, to Ecuador. Um, so the Americas. And what's interesting is zoning in Latin America is very similarly structured as in the U.S., so our, wow. the same scripts and the same algorithms can be used to expand to Latin America. So, so yeah, we designed the software to be scalable and to scale really quickly. We're hoping to have all 19,000 U.S. cities in the next couple of years. Wow. Uh, that's fantastic. So where does DeepLocks go from here? You're expanding to all these cities. You're looking at new technologies all the time, it sounds like. Is there a next major accomplishment that you see DeepLocks evolving into? Yeah, I think, um, you know, our next immediate step is to prove that our AI and our our internal indexes can lead to an early development investment and identify very specific parts of across every market of where to invest. That's number one, because if you don't make a good investment at the beginning, no matter what you build, it's probably not going to work out so well. Sure. Uh, that's the short term. And the long term is to either collaborate or build the rest of the building so that we can begin to be part of actual execution of development in real markets and show how fast and continue to compress that time from ideation to to execution. I think seeing the types of things that can be done when you apply, you know, one part audacity to say, I'm going to go solve for that, the technology that's at hand and then to actually be able to prove that doing well and doing good can truly be intertwined, I think is is phenomenal. And I appreciate you for that and, and what you're going to do next. Well, thank you. We feel very honored and, and grateful to be working in this project for sure. Thank you again for your time, Olivia. I'd love to have you maybe in a future episode so we can get an update on all the neat things that you guys are doing. I appreciate your taking the time, what I'm sure is a very busy schedule to talk about something that I think is going to be interesting to a lot of people. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining another episode of Light Data Action. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows. 
You can also follow us on Twitter at Light Data Action. And for more Lumen news, at Lumen Tech Co. As always, we'd love to get your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear on the show. And I hope you'll join us next time for another conversation.